And, and he said, you got, you got to do it. And I, and I said, okay, I'll said, I'll make, you know, I'll make some. So I think to start, we made, I don't think I made more than 20. Welcome to episode 99 of For the Love of Guns, the podcast about the true firearms culture. Thanks for joining Team Bench today as we bring on Peter from Rook Tactical as we talk about building and upgrading firearms. Before we talk to Peter, it's time to pay the bills. And this episode is brought to you by Falco Holsters. Falco's got everything I want along with everything I need in one package. And what's great about Falco is they can build a holster for any gun, every budget, without sacrificing quality. Now, on top of building holsters, they also make slings. Handmade slings. All their stuff is handmade. This is not machine-made stuff. They all do this by hand. They also make EDC belts. I got one of those, and they're absolutely amazing. Go check out Falco Holsters and use the checkout code BANSHEE to save 10%. This episode is also brought to you by Ammo Squared. Look, there's a banking crisis going on right now with these regional banks failing. Where are you going to put your money? Well, you could put it in gold. That's a good place. You put it in silver. But have you thought about copper jacketed lead? That's right, ammo. You already have the gun, and the gun without the ammo, well, it's not a very effective tool, is it? You know you're going to need ammo. So with Ammo Square, you can take a little bit of money, put it into ammo, have it stored in a secured facility, and then pull it out when you need it. Go check out Ammo Squared. I've got a link down below for you. Now with the bills paid, let's talk to Peter. Peter, tell me about your love of guns. Uh, yes, uh, good evening, Jason. Uh, my name is Peter Middleton. I am the owner of Rook Tactical. Uh, we are a small firearms parts manufacturing company based out of Texas, um, Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, kind of became known for our polymer 80 parts that we began manufacturing about two years ago. We started uh, in the field of making upgraded rear rails and front rails for the polymer 80 frames and have expanded our business into other things since then. You know, what's funny is, you know, there, there's something about Texas that just makes me kind of laugh, right? Because you get like, you know, I, I'm in Montana, right? But I say, you know, Montana's like, yeah, we're from Montana, right? And, you know, somebody from Pennsylvania is like, oh, I'm from Pennsylvania. And it's like, yeah, somebody, and you get, I'm from Texas, bitch. <laughs> you just got, right? You just got like, Texas just has that attitude, right? That we, we do. No other do. state has it. But I, I'm not originally from here. So um, I don't know if we talked about this on MGB's podcast. I'm originally from the UK. I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. So. Oh, no, I did not know that. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So I was I was born and raised in the United Kingdom. Um, I left there when I was 14. My mom uh, remarried uh, an American that worked overseas in Saudi Arabia. And so I went to Saudi for a couple of years and then um, uh, graduated from school there and came to the United States and did boarding school for a year up in Minnesota. And I lived in Minnesota, North Dakota for a while. And then I moved back to Minnesota and was kind of knocking around up there. And my my biological father was living in Houston. Um, and he, he kind of suggested that it might be good for me to move to Texas, um, you know, kind of the land of opportunity. Um, so I moved to Texas and got my mechanical engineering degree down here and then uh, did, did a lot of valve and, and um, I was a, basically a valve engineer for 20 years in the oil and gas industry. So that's funny because you've, you've done more 
than most people. You you've seen more of the world than most people have could could probably will ever see. Just uh, yeah, just I've been very lucky. Um, you know, we were just in we were just in the UK at Christmas. My wife and I went there for three weeks over Christmas. Um, my whole family pretty much still lives there, so I, I try to try to get back there as often as I can. Usually every couple of years, but um, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of the world and seen. Uh, I think I'm up to about 28 or 30 states now in the U.S. So we're doing pretty good. I'm trying to get all 50. Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, if if you ever make it up here to Montana, let me know, and then we'll go we'll go out and bang some steel together. That sounds like a, a great time. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that I've ever been to Montana. I've been close, obviously North Dakota. Um, yep. We were in You're Idaho like, um, last year. We did Idaho and uh, you were you were on both sides of Montana. <laughs> You're just, well, we did yeah, we did Yellowstone. So Yellowstone is in Montana, technically, right? Well, it, it? it's you go through uh, Montana. It depends on which entrance you go into Yellowstone. So if you go in through north, that's Montana. If you go in through west, which West Yellowstone is in Montana, and West yeah. Yellowstone, West Yellowstone is usually where most people go into. And then um, going in through Gardner, the north entrance, that's the Roosevelt Arch that everybody takes the picture of. Um, so those are those two entrances are in Montana. Other than that, you have uh, you come in from Wyoming on uh, the south or the yeah. east side. Yeah, uh, I not think many we did people Wyoming. come in through the east. I don't think we did. I don't think we made it to Montana. So, but I know we were close. <laughs> well, well, uh, did you come in through uh, like Teton? Yeah, we we did the Teton. We actually went okay. and and uh, went to see Grand Teton, and and then we actually stayed on in Idaho um on the teton side um so uh, we were supposed we were to be able just... to see the grand teton from where we stayed but it was too smoky it was during the california wildfires so yeah that's um that's a thing out here uh fires is definitely a thing out here um yeah. uh you know like for me when i'm filming content i have to i have to try to front load a lot of my content in the springtime and then the fall time, because I have no idea when they're going to shut off uh, shooting season for us because of uh -huh. fires, because we get out in the national woods. Because like, like for me, I, I shoot out in the, uh, the national forest. Um, they don't want people out there, you know, the bullets ricocheting and starting fires all over the place. Yeah. Because, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, when we go out shoot, when we go out shooting, we take fire extinguishers with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a few years ago, somebody was uh, shooting just north of Helena here. Um, and you're not allowed to shoot Tannerite in the National Forest. Um, this guy this guy was shooting Tannerite, set off a fire, ran his extinguisher dry, and there was still a fire. Oh, dear. <laughs> and so he called, he called in 911, and I think he burned six or seven thousand acres oh wow off that fire that's um, a lot i don't think and there was no houses that were burned down but uh a lot of people were evacuated and there were fires that went through their properties and they were less than impressed with this guy yeah we we get wildfires here um you know we're on the west side of fort worth and we get a lot of like roadside fires like the, the grass yeah. on the side of the highway will set fire and we had one maybe maybe three or four years ago that got pretty big and pretty kind of started moving towards our neighborhoods. Um, but they did manage to get that under control. But it burned for a good, I want to say it was 24 hours before they managed to get it. And they said, okay, it's under control now. So, 
you know, we get a we get a lot of people that um, mostly tourism that comes. You know, I mean, Montana that's that's our industry is tourism. Yeah. Uh, we have tourists that come here, and then like their car will break down, or they when they pull the side of the road to read a map, and they'll pull off into the grass and then start a fire because yeah. of the uh, heat tailpipes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a good way to of, uh, to announce that you're a tourist is to start a fire in Montana <laughs> because it, you pulled off on the side of the road. It's like good for you for pulling off to read a map, but get. <laughs> Find an exit. <laughs> so, and people just don't know. Um, well, anyways, moving along, uh, I'm going to do a little segment with you here. It's called Ask the AI. And okay. for the audience, usually I use chat GPT, but today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to use Bard from Google. And the first question I asked Bard was, why would someone want to upgrade a gun? And the answer that Bard gave us was to improve performance, to personalize a gun, to comply with regulations, to repair a damaged gun. This is why I like the AI stuff, because sometimes they come up with questions. You're like, if I'm upgrading a gun, the gun's probably already working. So repair a damaged gun's kind of weird. Um, and comply with regulations. Yeah. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. Um, I'll comply with regulations. Um, and, and this is the fun thing I, I that they gave with with comply with regulations. For example, in some states, it's required to have a threaded barrel on a pistol if you want to attach a suppressor. <laughs> Pretty um, much the only way you can attach a suppressor. The only way you can attach it. So this is why I like these AIs where they come up with questions. Um, what do you think about uh, improved performance or personalized a gun? I mean, I, I think they're pretty good uh, answers for that. Uh, I know that's pretty much why I upgrade guns. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd agree with that. The market that we sell to and the vast majority of our customers are people that are, you know, either manufacturing their own firearm or, or looking to make some upgrades to a firearm that they own. Um, a lot of the factory parts while great and designed to work um sometimes don't give the customers the desired finish or look or feel that they that they, that they really want and so um yeah absolutely and then of course performance is everything um i spent a lot of time when i was younger working around race cars and stuff and chasing performance in race cars and now i see people chasing performance in guns and and it's kind of the same thing right there's a lot of similarities there um, I just I don't think it's crossed over as much as I would have expected to by now. But but yeah, I can definitely see both of those things in in our sales and what we what we move as a product. Well, if you think about it, um, you know, like you're you're talking about your your upgrades are, are mostly for the Glock platform, right? And Polymer yeah. 80, I'm including Polymer 80 in with that. Um, let's face it, Glock is an ugly gun. <laughs> it's not you know I don't know anybody that looks at a Glock and goes. That is the most beautiful gun I've ever seen. Um, and it's almost like that ugly gun mentality literally drove the aftermarket parts for it. Because yeah. pe people didn't want an ugly gun. Um, you know, I was a Glock shooter for years. I used to, use a, I used to compete with a Glock 17 uh, before I switched over to six. But, I mean, they're, they're just ugly guns. <laughs> They're, they're yeah, very they definitely take, 
you know, um, functionality, I think over, over form. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of people describe holding a Glock as a holding a brick in your hands. Um, one of the reasons why the Palmer eighties is so popular, of course, is because they changed the grip angle to be the grip closer angle. to the 1911 grip angle, um, yep. which a lot of people find helps them, you know, when, when, when shooting and of course it takes all Glock parts, which makes it, um, easily accessible. Um, but yeah, they, they definitely did not, uh, shoot for good looking. It was just pure function. Um, yep. and that is one thing I will say, you know, in my experience, a Glock will pretty much always fire. It can be yeah. the dirtiest gun in the world and be fairly reliable platform. So, uh, well, it's funny cause I, 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 I know I, for the audience, I know I've said this before, but, um, you know, I used to shoot GSSF when I first started competing. That's actually how I got into competition shooting. And I remember I was shooting uh, a competition and, you know, it wasn't my, I, I've been, I've been competing for a little while. Um, and at a GSSF match, my Glock started jamming and I'm like, all right, well, they got an armorer here. I'm going to take it into the armor. So I took it into the armor. He's, he like takes it apart, replaces, he replaces the, um, the recoil spring. Um, and he's playing with it and he goes, I replaced the recoil spring. It wasn't bad, but I could tell you, you you've been using this gun. Uh, yeah. eventually it's going to be need to re be replaced. I go, well, that's solved my, my jam problem. He goes, no, he goes, your jam problem is you're cleaning your gun too much. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, yeah, you're, you're just cleaning your gun too much. He goes, how often do you clean your gun? I'm like every time I shoot you, he goes, no, <laughs> stop. Uh, he goes, he goes, probably, you know, you know, a couple thousand rounds, you know, and no, no more, not before a thousand rounds or unless it's going to be stored for a while. Yeah. Um, then clean the gun. He goes, other than that, he goes, he goes, how often are you shooting it? And I go, I don't know, man, I'm shooting like a couple times a week. He goes, yeah, don't, don't clean this thing before, before a thousand rounds. Um, yeah. So Glocks like to run dirty. <laughs> they just solve your problem. They're kind of like the AKs of pistols, right? Uh, yeah. Because I mean, AKs will just keep firing. The Glocks kind of are the same way. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've watched some pretty interesting videos over the years of people, you know, torture testing Glocks with hundred round drum mags, and you know, they'll just they'll run them until they don't run anymore. And you, yeah. I'm always surprised at how far they will go and how how much heat the Glock will take, even with They're the polymer frame. So. Yeah. Yeah, they got a lot of things right with the Glock. I don't. I don't think they. You know, it's obviously still one of the most popular handguns in the world. But um, I do think that they need to start making some serious considerations for a new platform because obviously Sig is now eating into their market share quite dramatically. So um, I do think. Yeah, they, they and, back and that's and the, that's the thing is is Sig Glock caught the industry with its pants down, right? Yeah. Um, they went a, a direction that everyone's like is never going to work. Well, it's it's still here. Um, so what, what's Glock like? Forty years old now, something like that. Yeah, um, it's, it's 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 been around a while. Um, and then everybody kind of went to that whole polymer side, and then uh, you know Sig kind of caught everybody off guard with the whole fire control unit. You know mm -hmm. the whole you know whole modularity. And now, now I think the market's having a hard time trying to trying to catch up with that. I mean, I know uh, Beretta with the APX has a, has an FCU, um, but nobody shoots an APX. 
Um, again, another ugly gun. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there's just these things like there are so many things that a, that a, a, an FCU can do that I don't even think we scratch the surface because, you know, there's there's been rumors of, of people working on AR platforms where you just take your FCU out of your SIG and pop it in. And now you have, you know, an AR um, that never came that never came to market. But it's interesting where people are looking at this going, huh? What else can I build around this FCU? Yeah, I mean, if I don't have to buy multiple firearms that are registered, if I can buy one FCU and register an FCU and just change that between the firearms that I want to shoot or even two FCUs, um, you know, I think a lot of people over the past few years have moved towards the, at least from, from what I've seen, have kind of moved towards the mantra of pick one, two, um, you know, kind of rounds that you're going to shoot five, five, six, nine millimeter, and make sure that all of the weapons in your house, for the most part, or you know, the firearms that you own, shoot those rounds because yep. it doesn't make sense to have 50 rounds or you know, 10 different rounds to shoot because it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, so, um, you know, I do think you're seeing a lot of that, and so again, having two FCUs that could do it all or one FCU that could do it all would be the ideal, that'd be the ideal gun, right. Yeah. Well, and then if you figure, if you have two FCUs, if one goes down, it's got to go to the gunsmith for repairs. You still got the other FCU that you can just put into something else. Yep. Switch between keep... what you need to switch it to. Yep. Yeah. It's it's a really, I mean, it's a really great platform. Um, you know, I've I've got uh, a couple of SIGs. Um, we we are looking at that market. Obviously, it would be would be silly not to. Um, we spent some time on it, but, um, you know, it's just, <clears throat> it's, it's difficult because we've, we're invested so heavily now in Glock and Polymer 80 yep. and to come out with a whole new product line. I've got things designed that I just don't have time to manufacture. So, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of that is just kind of time and bandwidth. So Rook Tactical is still pretty much just me, uh, you know, doing everything. So it's, uh, to be able to bring new products to market is, is often a struggle. So, yeah. Awesome. But we, yeah, we've definitely. got, yeah, we've got Sig on the menu. Um, Walther, I've got, I picked up a PDP and a PDPF, um, nice. and we're definitely looking at the Walthers. I think that the PDPF was a stroke of genius on Walther's part, simply because yeah. it appealed to an audience that nobody had ever really chased before in the past. I think exactly. the majority of firearms were just, this is what you get if you're a female. You just got to yep. learn to shoot and learn how to handle the firearm as it is. Um, and so coming up with that smaller footprint. On, and, and better ergonomic grip is was fantastic. So, yeah, because that's the thing. Um, I mean, that that female shooters is a thing. I mean, I've had several uh, people on the podcast that are female shooters and female uh, firearms instructors, and and you know, like my wife, she carries a Beretta uh, eighty five. So it's a it's a three eighty. Uh, it's a, it's a it's called the Cheetah. Um, rather just reintroduced the cheetah, um, but it's a single stack, and she loves that gun because it fits her hand. Right, yep. nothing else fits her hand. You know, she's she's shot Glock. She's she's got Berettas. I mean, she's got Sigs. It's it, it's finding that gun that fits you, your needs, and your hand is is tough. And yep. I, I think you know, I saw a bunch of. Um, I saw a bunch of, of female shooters jump on that that PDP when it came out, and so it's like they're like, "This is my gun." I'm like, 
you know, I'm scratching my head going, but you're like a staunch Glock shooter or you're a staunch SIG shooter. And now that's all they're doing is, is running those things. You know, they, they found another company. It's like they under somebody understands us. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's, I haven't shot mine yet. I bought two of them. I still haven't shot them. So, <laughs> so I don't know, well, but I do like the you're too busy turning out product for everybody. Huh? You're too busy turning out product for everybody to go shoot. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the, it's kind of one of the things I always tell people, you know, I own a gun parts manufacturing company and they're like, Oh, you you're lucky. You get to go to the range all the time. I'm like, I never get to go to the range. Yeah. The last time I shot was shot show. I went to the range day at shot show and that's the okay, last time. So, I shot. so don't feel bad because that's, um, so I was at range day. So I shot at range day and I actually shot on Tuesday of shot day one of shot show um because of um uh brg usa um so i i, I know the guys over brg usa so uh tuesday they, they had the 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 mobile ranges out and i got to go shoot the new brg in the mobile ranges on tuesday but that was literally the last time i shot this year um there you go I see did, same so so i got busy. one day ahead of you that i got to shoot yeah yeah and, we and used... it's only probably by about 10 rounds i think i only shot like 10 rounds that day yeah i and i, I didn't shoot much at shot show i just i was trying to try out a bunch of different things so um we used to have a range close by that was a, an amazing firearms range um they had 20 outdoor bays all 20 foot berms you could shoot anything you wanted and if you wanted to shoot carbine rifle whatever you wanted in these in the pistol bays and then they had targets out to 2,000 yards. Wow. Um, so, yeah, it was a big range. And it, it, unfortunately, it got closed down um, due to some lease disagreements over the lease road that you had to drive on to get to it. Um, but it was called TC3, and it was just a fantastic range. So, but, so closed right after we started, Rook. <laughs> no figures. Um, I'm going to burn through the next two questions here. So we can actually talk right. more about guns. Um, the second question I asked ChatGPT is, what is the most common upgrades to a Glock someone does? And ChatGPT came up with sights. Factory sights on Glocks are adequate for casual range shooting, but not ideal for self-defense or competitive scenarios, which I would agree. Uh, Glock sights are, they're okay. <laughs> they're, not, they're, nothing, they're nothing great. Um, they go on to triggers. Uh, the tr uh, trigger on a Glock is a common upgrade. Um, grip, which I don't know how you upgrade the grip unless you're, they're talking about stippling, but uh, reading through here, uh, they're talking about it being too thin or too smooth, um, which could be stippling is where they're going with that slide. Uh, I see a lot of Glocks where people tear the slides off just because, um, especially in earlier Glocks when Glock, you, they really weren't dealing with red dots. Yeah, before the yeah, before they did RMRs and stuff. Yep. And <clears throat> barrels. Um, aftermarket barrels are often higher quality uh, materials and are more accurate than factory barrels. Uh yeah, I mean I think there's probably some some arguments to be made for that and against that, but yeah. I'd agree um, with most I of those things. I had um God, it's gonna kill me now. Uh he's in South Dakota. He makes he makes barrels. Um, uh, on the podcast a year ago, we were talking about the Glock barrels, and um, I think the biggest the biggest thing with the Glock barrels is the conversion barrels. 
-hmm. that I saw. Back when I was in FFL, I sold a lot of uh, Storm Lake conversion barrels where people have ran out. They ran out and bought that 40 because it was going to be the new hot thing. And then no one liked the 40. And then they're like, uh, I want to. I want to do a new gun. I can't afford a whole slide because, you know, you can just change the slide out to, to it like a 17 slide or a 19 slide. Yeah. So uh, I was selling the Storm Lake conversion barrels and just dropping them in and knocking them back to nine millimeter for them. And then they're like, oh, I got two guns now. <laughs> like, yeah. 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 Kind of. Yeah. Uh, I run a, a Glock 23 is my my carry gun, 40. Um, just because it's what I have and it's, I, it's just the only one I have that's bone stock. I don't, I don't ever really do much to my carry guns. Um, yeah, I, I don't no. either. I, I like to, my carry guns. I like to keep them as stock as possible. Yeah. Um, it's a little easier to defend yourself in court if you needed to defend yourself in real life. Yeah. 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 The only, my wife carries a 43 X and the only mod I've done to that is a shield mag with a shield mag release and that's it just so she can have extra rounds. Um, yep. but outside of that, yeah, my, for, for everyday carry, we, we keep it pretty stock and I, I, I carry the 43 X quite a bit too, If I'm leaving the house and she's not come with me. I'll carry that just for a smaller footprint. Um, but she really wants a 43. So this is the standard. Um, yeah, I, I can see that. And then the last thing I asked Bard was what can you tell me about Rook tactical? Oh, and it came up with. Rook Tactical is a company that designs, manufactures firearm parts for Polymer 80, Glock, and other firearms. They were founded in 2020, based in Nashville, Tennessee. I didn't know that Correct. you were based in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, especially since you just said you were in Texas. Uh, it's so funny when they when they pull some of this stuff up. Um, and then they go on, they t uh, slides, barrels, frames, um, and they... All of these pretty much repeat of polymer 80 and Glock pistols. Yeah, so I know I know why it's saying Nashville, Tennessee, I'm pretty sure. So there's a company, and it's kind of interesting. Um, they were at SHOT Show this year, and we talked to them. Oh, I was looking at the brochure earlier. So they actually, they manufacture, they take um, bobcats and turn them into armored bobcats for police departments. And it's a called it's called the Rook Tactical Vehicle. And so it's real. Were, were they in the first floor? Yeah, they were, were down. They, the the main, first they, they were in the main floor, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, they were like that. in the in the below section. The below. Oh, were section. they in the base? Were they down in the dungeon? Yeah, oh. they were down in the dungeon. <laughs> so, Sorry, a couple of us call it the dungeon. What's I mean, it funny is, is kind of dungeon like. I'm, <laughs> I don't disagree it's kind of dungeon like. It's very dark. But um, you know, as much as the main floor has the flashy stuff, I like the dungeon. Yeah, um, because you have all the small companies that like, you know, you have anything from we put everything we had in our bank account to be here at shot. We really want to be to, you know, just regular small companies. And it's great to talk to them. But it's funny. I think I remember something up, upstairs. Uh, maybe that was the end. Oh, that was it was Enco that was, I'm thinking of that was upstairs that makes the uh, the MRAPs. Yep. Yeah, those things are cool, cool, but these guys convert bobcats into armored vehicles, and they have a whole thing that sits on the front, and they can have like three or four officers inside it, and they can move it towards a target, and they can fire from behind a essentially that's a, cool a bullet shield. Yeah, it's called that's it's cool. called the. Rook. I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out how I missed that one because I totally would have grabbed that. 
Yeah, they had one there too. They had they had one downstairs in the thing. It's pretty. It's not small. It's a pretty big vehicle, and they had it down there in the in the dungeon. So that's funny. So it's funny just how that they you know they kind of took two companies and mixed them together. Uh, Yeah, I think so. I want to say they were based in Nashville. So, but they originally were like a JCB tractor supply company. They sold JCBs and Bobcats, and then they took it on themselves to, to to make this thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it, you know that that's good old ingenuity when you can do that because I never thought of up armoring a bobcat. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my next my next door neighbor has a bobcat, but that's because he works on heavy equipment and stuff. Um, yeah. you know, he works on big dozer stuff. He uses the bobcat to like lift the dozer blade up so they can get under and repair, um, you know, uh, uh, hydraulic lines and stuff. But I never thought about up armoring a bobcat. Necessity breeds invention. <laughs> Right, right. Well, speaking of necessity breeds invention, let's uh, let's bring up the uh, let's bring up the web page here. Okay. So on your web page here, which you just got a brand new web page. I did, I did. Um, we actually released this. When did I release this? I was on my way to the, or I was coming back from the UK when we when we actually went live with this. Um, I I had a gentleman reach out to me, great guy, uh, Michael, and he cold called me and said, "Hey, uh, you know, I'd like to do some work for you in exchange for parts and uh, graphic designer." And he said, "You know, I've also done some website stuff, and so, uh, you know, took him up on the offer, but said I'm not going to pay you in parts. So you know, I'll pay you your regular wage, whatever that may be." Um, but he just, he's done a great job, man. He's done a lot of stuff over the last, uh, last six months that we've been working together. Um, you know, designed these shirts, designed my new shooting shirts. Uh, we're working on a few other projects as well, but yeah, he, he, he redesigned the whole, the whole website. The, the apparel right now is no good. We're, we're getting ready to revamp a lot of that. Get ready to so, redo it. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, one of the, uh, it, it's going to be so cheesy for me saying this. But I think one of the coolest accessories that you have. Um, you go to the tax bike, aren't you? The tax bike, yes. Yeah, you knew exactly where I was going with that, right? <laughs> there it is. Uh, the tax bike. Yeah. Um, of course, it doesn't really work well with a with a. No, and that's. I took that picture. It was just kind of a, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it was, we kind of did it as kind of a Halloween zombie joke kind of thing. And then, yeah. um, I have a, I have a, a, a best friend that he kind of made fun of it and was like, oh, you know, it's, uh, whatever. And then, and then every time I, every time I sell one now, I always tell him, Hey, we sold a couple of tax bikes today and how <laughs> sells my guide rod and the majority of the time. It's just kind of funny. So it's just, yeah, it is. It, it, it's just one of those things. It's like, Okay, I want I want a spike sticking off the front. I'm sorry, it's not a spike. It would be a, it would be so if I'm carrying my everyday carry and for some reason I was trapped in my car, it's a glass break, right? Uh, no, we actually tried to break some car glass with it and it did not work. So, really? Yeah, it's more for just doming zombies. I mean, with you know, if you run out of bullets, you got you got an extra me- melee weapon to you know fend off the zombies or. <laughs> Puncture a tire. You can puncture tires with it. Um, you know, if you're if you're being pursued and need to puncture a tire to stop somebody from pursuing you, that's another possible use for it. Um, so oh, yeah, it was just kind of a wild thing. So 
you know, we talked a lot offline, you know, about, about parts and stuff. And you came up, um, parts, here we go. Sorry. Um, you, you, you came up with a lot of stuff. Now tell me a little bit about like the rails for the polymer 80. You know, if I buy a polymer 80, I get a rail system with it. Why would I want to buy another rail system? I mean, what, what's the advantage of doing that? Oh, you know, this started because I purchased polymer 80s, um, essentially. Um, and so I, I purchased a couple of polymer 80s for me and my friends, kind of Christmas presents, fun, just something fun to do. I like to build stuff. I don't, you know, as an engineer, I've got, a, I had a little mill and lathe in my garage before I started Rook Tactical and I'd always just been a tinkerer. And I'd never really been brave enough to get into 1911s, which, you know, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about later. But talk a little bit, yeah. Um, so polymer 80s kind of presented this easy entry into, oh, I can build my own firearm at home, you know, practice the Second Amendment. Um, and uh, so I, I bought a couple and I built them. And while that while I was building them, you know, I ran into the the issues that a lot of people were experiencing. And, and I didn't really realize this until I kind of joined some of the groups and started looking into, you know, OK, does everyone have this experience of a lot of times the rails don't fit? A lot of times, um, you know, the, the holes, they'll say, well, you know, I drilled the holes correctly, but maybe they're not drilled correctly. But it, however, there was just there was definite fitment issues, um, you know, and, and it seemed to be a and I'm not I'm not trying not to knock on Paul Moretti too much because I, I really like those guys. Um, but, you know, at that time period, there was definitely some quality control problems with, you know, with kind of some of the Paul Moretti products. Um, it was well known. Uh, it was well documented. A lot of people talked about it. Uh, I mean, as an engineer, I just kind of looked at it and went, oh, I wonder, wonder if I can do better. And so I, um, I, you know, I went into SolidWorks and I kind of drew up some, I reverse engineered them essentially, measured them out yeah. and I drew up some rails and I, I think I posted them to one of the Facebook groups and this is two and a half, almost three years ago now. And within a day or two, I had like 120 replies of people like, can you make these? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> okay, all right, well, uh, we can look into that. And I, I I'd had another little entrepreneur thing earlier in my life that had gone similar to this, where I built a tool to take coil packs off of M3 BMWs, a whole other story. However, similar kind of reaction to that. And I was like, and that was pretty successful. And I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I can. I said, well, I can, I can look into it. And one of the posts that, that struck me to this day was uh, Lauren Kelly actually replied to that post, the owner of Paul Murray. Wow. And, okay. and he's like, uh, you may want to look into, um, you know, the patent uh, that Paul Murray have surrounding this. And that's kind of when I knew I was on the right track, right? That's yeah. okay. If, when, if, when the manufacturer's you know, like, it gives you a little heads up. You're like, huh? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, and I, I'd, I don't know if I'd befriended Kenny at this point, but I think Kenny might've reached out to me and, and he said, you got, you got to do it. And I, and I said, okay, I'll said, I'll make, you know, I'll make some. So I think to start, we made, I don't think I made more than 20. I made some prototypes. I found a company that would make some prototypes for just the front rails originally and a different company that made the rear rails. And my original idea with the rear rails was actually to make them to get around Paul Moretti's patent was to make them flat, um, but connected with some machined grooves so you could yep. fold them at home, right? That was the original okay. design. And so I had the front rails on the way <clears throat> and the rear rails arrived. And when I folded them, they snapped. And I was like, oh, this is not good. But they still had this, this extra, you know, the extra, it's kind of hard to, that thickness. 
So yep. the polymer 80 rails, they have the tab that folds out to hold the trigger housing in. Well, we extended that thickness for more stability. And um, when it snapped, I said, well, I'll test fit them anyway. And they popped right in. And I was like, oh, this is this is the way. <laughs> so, so it was kind of like that aha moment. And so, so then I was like, okay, well, we can make them in two separate pieces. It circumvents the patent, which I was still a little bit concerned about, which is why we've done the, the folding ones. But in the meantime, the front rails, um, you know, they, they were pretty easy. They were just a standard machine. I knew we were going to machine them and just and have them be as close as possible to the polymer 80 rails. Um, you know, polymer 80 rails, the front rails are, are metal injection molded, which is which yep. is why they had a lot of issues with them. Um, and we just knew that with some more precision, um, you know, we could we could manufacture them. And I don't remember what the first ones cost me, but it was probably more than I sold them for. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, typical, I, typical first product, huh? It's typical first product. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, they, so I, I, you know, I, I put them in stock, and, and in the background during this time, kind of another little story that not a lot of people know that I'll share with you. So, I'd made the decision to start a company, Rook Tactical, uh, and made the decision to make the rails. And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to make the rails, then I should probably sell Glock parts too, because kind of goes hand in hand and there's a, a local store to me um it's a little hardware store but they also sell they have an ffl they sell guns they sell gun parts and stuff like that and i've been going in there since i met my wife so almost this is so almost eight years and for eight years in the back they'd had this one box that said like glock parts 399 and it was this tupperware drawer thing and it had three tupper three drawers of like just recoil springs and parts. triggers and yep. So I, and I'd got a couple of parts out of it over time for four bucks. I was like, you know, I can't beat it. Yeah. And so I went in there one day and I knew they were getting close to doing a remodel. And I said to the manager, I said, Hey, can I look at that Glock box and maybe just make you an offer and get it out of your way? I said, I know it's been here a long time. He's like, Oh, please make me an offer. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, the guy <laughs> wants to bargain. So, uh, so I went in and, you know, I kind of looked through it and I was like, oh, there's like 20 triggers and it looks like maybe some extractors and maybe some other stuff. And, you know, there's some parts in here, mag, a lot of mag springs. And so I figured it to be a thousand dollars worth of Glock parts. And so I, I said, well, I'll give you, you know, 600 bucks for it. And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Get it out of here. So, you know, paid $600, walked out of there with this, this deal. So I got home and it took me two and a half weeks to inventory everything in the drawers. Oh. It, 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 so there was bags inside bags inside bags yeah. and so everything was opaque so i couldn't really see what was in there it turned out to be eighteen thousand dollars at retail of glock parts oh, oh yeah. so so that is you got the deal you got the deal of the century yeah. I, did, I did and that was that was the seed money for rook tactical that's what started rook tactical so at that point i had the cash to be able to go out buy a, you know, a substantially more amount of rails and everything else. And so, and a lot of it was all gen three and this is right. I'm trying to think timeline wise, it was kind of when COVID was kicking off and, you know, there was a massive gen three supply shortage, parts supply yeah, shortage. Huge. Yeah. Huge. And so I kind of, you know, right at the right time, you know, and I didn't gouge anybody on prices. I put everything in stock at retail. Um, but then designed a website and, you know, and then, so between that and then the rails coming in stock and then we weren't able to keep rails in stock, just took off from there. Yeah. I remember, um, when, when I had my, my FFL, I had, uh, I had, uh, lower parts kits for ARs mm -hmm. that were out on Gunbroker, Right. 
And they were, you know, had them out there for like, you know, 45 bucks, you know, plus, plus shipping. So I wasn't like gouging people on the prices of these things. These were, these were actually uh, DPMS parts kits, like right. in the retail packaging and everything, because I was a DPMS dealer. And um, one day I'm sitting there going, you know, I went to go check my auctions. I'm like, Man, why are people bidding up these lower parts kits? Right. I'm like, something happened. So I had to turn on the TV, and that's when, um, um, what was the school shooting in uh, Connecticut? Um, Sandy Hook. Anyway, Sandy Hook. So that, that was the day of Sandy Hook. So I'm like, these people are stupid running because I didn't have like, I just had 45 hours. You know, they were out there for like three days. Um, somebody wanted to bid up to 50, whatever. I don't care what you do, or you can just throw a bid in for $45 in three days. You got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I started selling parts kits for $200 because they were, they wow. started, people started bidding these things up and I, I, I stopped listing stuff. Um, well, and I'm just like, I, I can't believe it. And that was actually happened to me. That's how I got a lot of money to start bringing in inventory. Um, because people were kind of being stupid. Um, but then, yeah, I, I started putting out uh, parts kits and I started putting out like, you know, $65 by, you know, it's just buy it now, $65. Buy it now, yeah. And then I, and that was $65 with free shipping. And man, I had like three or 400 lower parts kits. Mm -hmm. And man, yeah, that's, you get, you get those little things. That's, that's how you that's how you get that seed bunny to start really doing some more things yeah oh yeah for sure yeah that was kind of the that was how it all started so and it now uh, and then about a year and a half after that i was working full-time um and i guess last august my job approached me they wanted me to move to houston uh i'd lived in houston for 17 years and i basically told them there's no amount of money that you could pay me to move back there so. <laughs> <laughs> so the wife and the wife was behind me and she's like, look, Rook's taken off. It's successful. She's like, you've already proven it's a successful business model. She's like, quit your job. So, so I haven't held a full-time job since August of last year. Um, and yeah, Rook Tactical is full-time now for me. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's great, man. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's blood, sweat and tears, but it's, it's definitely worth it to be able to make my own schedule. Um, you know, work from home today, just kind of potter around yep. the house today. it just it just hit me a brit living the american dream oh yeah 100 <laughs> percent. i'm an american citizen now though i am an american yeah, citizen. i know i know i can still tease you though <laughs> so I, you can you can throw some tea bags in the toilet later i won't be mad at you <laughs> i drink tea i'm sorry i, I and i and uh yeah mine's uh i like i like the earl i'm sorry i like earl gray uh, okay well, <laughs> you'd be you'd be you'd be allowed then <laughs> there you go um well, anyways, you kind of hinted a little bit about some future of Rook Tactical. Um, and I know you can't t say everything about everything, but can you mm -hmm. give us kind of a peek of what you've got going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the biggest thing that we're working on right now, obviously, is the Uno. Um, uh, you know, we had the, the video on the web page. Uh, we, we probably released that video a little bit early i think um but once i got the patent for it then I, I you know i knew i was covered and so we we did release that um when when i have to ask when do you plan on releasing this podcast 
So we're recording this Wednesday. It will go out Sunday on YouTube and okay. audio and Monday on third party platforms like, you know, uh, name the, uh, you know, the conservative platform of the week there, you know? Yeah. Rumble or, okay. Rumble, then I can show yeah. it to you. We are going to put out a sneak peek probably on Friday. Um, so yeah, essentially, um, you know, during the last year kind of, um, when the ATF was, was trying to shut everything down and, and had come in and, you know, separated frames and jigs, uh, we saw quite a, quite a few people saying, you know, somebody needs to manufacture a precision jig, um, you know, out of metal, um, a lot of the holes are similar on polymer 80s, which is kind of true. Um, <laughs> so uh, I went ahead and started designing the Uno. Um, so this is the this is actually the first prototype um, awesome. that we've been working on. Um, and so essentially what happens is, um, of course, we over-engineered it. So there's lots of holes in there. And each of those holes takes a bushing, a steel bushing that's a half inch thick. And those bushings are replaceable and interchangeable. And also, it, you know, depending on which frame you want to drill out, the bushings are correspond to different frames. So See, we did awesome. make it. Huh? That's awesome. I, I love that idea. Yeah. And we did actually add the fourth hole capability for the 76ers, the people yeah. out there that got the 76% frames. And this was an addition after SHOT Show because obviously we saw the, the deal at SHOT Show. And so we did actually yep. add the ability to drill the fourth hole in the front. Um, so this has literally come off the mill um, this week. Um, so that's that's how you do the, the side holes, um, you know, and it'll it'll come with instructions and some other cool stuff on both sides. And then at the top, uh, this way, uh, we have uh, individual locations for um, finishing out the channel using a router tool. Um, so we'll have a plate that bolts in here, um, and it'll be the right width. And then you just set your depth, um, set your depth and it'll come in and you can finish it out perfectly with the ball nose end mill. Cause you know, we talked a little bit beforehand and we, we talked a little bit about 1911 building and I build, uh, I still got the stuff up here. Um, uh, I build off of matrix precision jigs, which I told you I loved because of the bushing. And I told you, actually, I had screwed one up with a with a drill bit that broke i mm -hmm. love being able to rebuild a jig um but so you what you showed me was kind of a a, a mix of like this matrix precision right and uh this 5d tactical it's kind of because yeah. for filling out the back of the of the 76 or of the bridge well i guess the bridge frame or 76 or every everybody's got a new, new name for it yeah, the bridge um, frame, yeah. The bridge frame. So that's that's kind of the the cool thing about it is, you, is it's you've got a jig because let's face it, uh, polymer eighty jigs kind of well they suck. Um, uh, uh, I did a whole video on um, you know back in the day about uh, I built a you know one of the um, the SC frames and yeah. the jig would allow you to snap it shut. With the SC frame actually cocked, so you drill yeah. the holes in the wrong spot. Um, yeah. And that, oh man, that, I, that was a that was an interesting call with their tech support line. Um, and uh, and that's what I like about aftermarket, right? Because now you can have something that's engineered. If you're going to build a couple of them, then you're going to have a a, a a sturdy jig. It's not just some injection molded plastic. 
Um, yeah, just right like that. That's that you see you you right there. That jig speaks to me because I I don't like go. It's, I don't like instructions where people like. Well, if it doesn't close right, you can tape it shut. Like, yeah, that's not a jig. I'm sorry. No, ours, our, our cover, like, it, you know, it, it bolts together. Everything's, yeah, everything bolts together. So that's awesome. And then it's designed too. So you can't put it on the wrong way, right? So the lid only goes one way to line up properly. Oh, Things like that. We've really tried to make it somewhat um, idiot proof. Nothing is idiot proof. I, I was, that's um, what was going through my head. Right. <laughs> But yeah, you know, and then so I think that one of the biggest obstacles with the polymer 80s too is no two frames are actually exactly the same. They are all a little bit different. And so in order to get around that, um, you know, lo location of the frame within the jig was probably the hardest thing and what I spent the most time engineering on. I mean, this is nine months of work now almost, um, including filing the patent. So, um, you know, nine months in, we're just getting into basically testing um you know we're starting to drop some frames in check hole alignment that kind of stuff so and, and how we overcame that problem with each um each frame we're using the picatinny rails okay and the rear beaver tail and so there's there's custom inserts for each frame now for the v2 and the cl and the c and the sc frame they all use the same beaver tail insert but every one of the front picatinnies is different and so then once you've got the frame in there and you and you bolt the top on it per, it's solid it doesn't move at all it's it's locked in there so we react off the tabs on the top when the when the plate comes on presses yep. the tabs in so even if the frame's got a slight bow in it it actually straightens the frame out um you oh, know wow. and, and locks it in place um and then yeah i don't have the bushings we're actually the bushings are on the swiss machine this week um but yeah the, the bushings will be a you know basically a stainless steel um, and they'll be replaceable. So this thing should be a lifetime jig. I don't know if we're going to offer that kind of warranty, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, the idea, I like to build products that are going to last and, and people can hand down and, you know, or sell yeah. later on if they want to build 20 and, and sell it, you know, it'll be still be in good enough quality to sell. So. Well, and, and that's, you know, that speaks to me because I, typically I don't like single use tools, but when I do buy them, like, you know, um, like when I bought these matrix, I mean, yeah, this jig, this jig is for basically all the 1911s, right? Whether you have a, a you know, the, the, um, the small frame all the way out to the six inch frame. Right. Um, and that's why I bought this jig is because at least I know that no matter what 1911 I do, it's going to do that. It's going to do that. Um, so when I buy a single purpose tool, I want, I want it to be able to last. And I want it to do as much as I can, which is why your jig kind of speaks to me because it doesn't matter what frame I get, I can do it in it. And I know it's going to last because, you know, uh, I already know about the, about bushings and replacing bushings. It's great to be able to rebuild your jig for when there's something goes wrong. And, um, you know, when, when I did my last 1911 and that, I had no idea that I was going to have a drill bit break during drilling. Yeah. Um, you can't, you can't plan for things like that. Yeah. So that's where I know that, you know, with a, a replaceable, uh, bushing, I mean, that it broke off in the frame and it jammed inside the bushing. Um, was, it was, it was a nasty one. I mean, I, I, to salvage the frame, I had to get carbide, um, 
uh, solid carbide drill bits, mm-hmm. which are very brittle, but they're very sharp. Yeah. Um, you know, and then uh, I had to drill that, you know, it out of the frame, and then I had to just push the bushing out. But yeah, I love I love that ability, and then it's going to do everything. Yeah, um, we're, we're probably going to, you know, originally we advertised it as fitting the GST nine and the um, Lone Wolf as well. So obviously, GST nine came out with their Infinity Jig um, three days after we released the video for this. They they announced it, um, and it only fits their frame, um, and so you know. For us to now chase that probably isn't a good thing um, because of the fact that they sell that with the rails. They sell their Infinity Jig with the rails. Yeah. And so you can buy like five sets of rails with their Infinity Jig. So we probably will have, uh, you know, the, the Picatinny rails that go in and, and basically locate and the, and the rear beer tail locator. We will have setups for the GST9 and Lone Wolf, but we'll probably sell them separately um just to kind of keep the price reasonable you know kind of where we want to be at um you know we're shooting for a price below 300 dollars, so um you know to keep it in that range um we'll we'll make the gst9 and lone wolf kind of add-ons at a later date so but it will fit every single polymer 80 frame that they currently manufacture pf45 b2 c cl ss all of them well, the the advantage they have is since all these guns are, you know, they're Glock frame. They're they're based off a of Glock frame. Mm-hmm. They're 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 going to take the Glock internals, so holes have to be in certain places, no matter what manufacturer it is, in order to work with those parts. Yeah. So that's really just kind of engineering for the next step. At that point, okay, well, we know these holes got to be in the same place which you have the bushings in. Now I just got to figure out how to shim or, you know, put inserts into this thing to, for the next manufacturers. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, the trigger, the trigger pin hole and the rear rail holes are the two most important. And so the trigger yeah. pin holes are datum. That's, that's where everything on the chassis is designed from. Um, so we locate the, the, we locate the piece in inside based upon trigger hole location, because that's the most, that's the most critical one. Um, and everything, you know, is measured from that. Now, it is interesting. You'd be surprised at the difference between the manufacturers. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, some uh, some issues that people experience as far as, you know, firearms not working correctly are probably down to the differences between those two holes and kind of where yep. they sit. Um, but there is some significant differences we found when we were doing the R&D on this, um, you know, and trying to get that balance between all of the holes was, was definitely one of the more challenging aspects of the project. I mean, that alone is worth your time for the uh, patent of the jig. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the engineering you need. I mean, it's, it, you know, you know, I, I'm not, I don't, I'm not an engineer. I have an engineer, you know, I don't really work in CAD that much, but I do do some 3d printing and I stayed at a holiday inn. Um, so, you know, working in that three-dimensional space <laughs> For anybody that hasn't done it, it's easy to get lost fast if you're not used to it. So, I mean, the time that you spent sitting at that CAD station working that thing, um, that's that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work, and that's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears right there. Yeah, so it's it's been an interesting year. So I essentially this year, you know, we made the decision to purchase a, a full-on CNC mill 
Um, so we, I, I own a CNC mill now and I never run one before. I'd always been an engineer making the drawings, making the parts, SolidWorks yeah. been doing for 20 years. But, but now I'm teaching myself how to CNC machine as well. Um, and so all the parts, you know, all the parts are made by me. <laughs> so, so that's, I think there's been more blood, sweat and tears from that than from the, the cam stuff because the cam stuff, <laughs> or the, you know, the design stuff for me, the CAD stuff's pretty easy, but the, but the, the running a, a very large CNC machine effectively has, has given me a whole new respect for machinists. So, so, so uh, give me an idea. Well, first of all, what CNC did you get? So I bought a Herco VM10i. Um, so I like the so, Hercos because they have a digital interface. So that um, so that cost you a good 100 200 bucks, right? Yeah, about that. About $200. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we purchased a Herco earlier this year. Um, we do have some other um, interests. We have we live in a very aerospace heavy community. So we've been yeah. able to kind of, you know, get a few contracts here and there for some aerospace stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the, the vast majority of why I bought this machine was to be able to manufacture research and development parts quickly. Um, you know, I've been 3d printing for, since 2008. Um, I've always run Prusas. I've had, you know, four or five Prusas for a couple of years and, and always been heavy in the 3d printing as well. Um, but the, the ability to go from a prototype to a, a product quickly. Um, kind of drove the, the decision to buy a mill. So equivalent mill, like in a Haas, would be like a VF2. So it's a pretty small footprint. It's not a huge mill, um, but it is a production quality machine, right? We can we can do production parts and production runs so, on it. So about how much do those things run? Uh, brand new, the Herco VM10i, like fully loaded out, would be about $100,000. So, so that the reason why I bring that up, and that's why I kind of joked around about the hundred or two hundred dollars. Um, you know, everybody in the audience realize what he's talking about is a significant, you know, amount of money that he's putting into the company to develop parts that yeah. he's selling to, to to maintain quality and 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 come up with new products. Um, I mean. This is this is not you know because you know I know there's a lot of 3D printers out in you know in the audience and you know I know some of them I could do that with my Ender I could do it too but it's probably not going to turn out very well yeah. Yeah. it you know it's 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 just not this, this is not this is not your homemade product this is a very professional product that was developed and engineered and is. Yeah, you because know, I know what people are going to say when they see price tags. They're going to be, "Oh my God, why would I do that?" Because you're you're buying the quality and the time and the engineering and the materials, because uh, materials are not cheap right now. At no, all. no, they're not. It's definitely not not a cheap part to produce. Um, so, and you know, we've we've always been one of the one of the largest. Um, obstacles for me i would say not even an obstacle one of my hang-ups is that i, I don't i don't want to do pre-sale I, I i would prefer to yeah. you know make the money make the parts really on my it. dime and then if somebody wants to buy them great now with the uno we don't really have any idea what the market looks like um and that's the honest yeah. truth just because of the back and forth and everything that's happened with the atf um so we've invested to you know make a specific amount um, and once those are gone, um, we're going to take pre-orders. However, 
I think the way that we're going to approach it and, and, you know, I'd be happy to hear feedback on this from anybody that watches this podcast. Um, you know, kind of the thing we've come up with is a small deposit, nowhere near the amount that you will have to pay for the, for the, you know, for the Uno itself, just a deposit to show your intention to purchase it. Um, you know, and tie you in a little bit with some investment, but I don't want to, I'm not going to charge you the full price for it. I'm going to make sure that, you know, that's on my dime. So, you know, it, that is not, that's not unreasonable. I mean, you know, if, if someone's going to go out and buy a ghost gunner from, you know, uh, from, you know, ghost gunner, um, you know, it takes time, it takes time and resources to build those things. And very often they're not in stock. It's, they ask for like a $200 deposit on a $2,000 piece of machinery. Um, That's, you know, you, you've you've committed to to that time slot. I mean, it's like going out and buying a custom Corvette to get time on Chevy's, you know, Chevy's assembly line to build your Corvette because you're not going to get one, you know, at the showroom. You got to put you got to put a deposit down on that on that time slot. Um, I mean, this this is not you know this this is the difference. You know, what what you're showing here is the difference between a Chevette and a Corvette, right? Yeah, yeah, um, for this sure. Is, this is for sure. This is this is you know this is not your everyday beater. This is this is a professionally designed, um, consistent, you know, consistent pr- uh, production product. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you know, and I, it kind of speaks for itself, right? I mean, it's 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 a high quality part. We are not producing yep. something that's not going to be high quality. This isn't the finished product. It will be anodized, and we've got a few other little party tricks up our sleeve, um, but. You know, we definitely feel like, you know, a 10% deposit is something that is agreeable to people. I'm not going to go out and say, hey, give me $300 and maybe you'll see your Uno in six months. You know, put a 10% yeah. deposit down, show your intention to buy it. We'll email you with an invoice when it's when it's done. You'll get in the line. And, you know, I think that's and that's kind of, a, a you know, the, the, the easiest way for us to gauge what the market really looks like for it and not have to. We, we made a large investment um, on some rails that don't didn't really sell as well as we were expecting and so now we've kind of been stuck with those and you know we think we still sell them they still move but it was still a very large amount of cash that we put out to kind of yeah. you know we took some risks and it's it's bitten us before so we we've, we've tried to figure out a fair way to um you know to, to entice people but not you know you know yeah. um and so then the other hard thing sell. Is, yeah yeah, the other part of that is if if it comes to the point where okay, your Uno is ready, and you've decided, oh man, I, I really don't want my Uno, then you know, we'll our 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 original thought is to give people store credit, so you know you can get store credit um, for your deposit, um, and then you know if if you want to go another route, then we we'll, we can definitely you know try to accommodate you as best we can. So now to give give everybody an idea here, I'm going to bring your website up. If for some reason you decide to go the store credit route. Um, bring this up full screen here. You have, I mean, beyond beyond rails and stuff. I mean, we know we talked about rails. You have all kinds of parts. You have literally, I mean, with the exception of the frame, you got everything. Um, I mean, you have safety. Yeah, I mean, plungers. we have we we have a great Glock parts inventory as well. You know, a lot of stuff that's out of stock at Midway and Brownells. Um, you know, if you go up to the parts and do OEM Glock parts, I mean, I, I carry a very large inventory of OEM Glock parts and we have pretty much everything. Um, 
you know, we, we carry full parts kits, upper parts kits, lower parts kits have been a little bit harder to come by. Um, I could probably put some together if I really wanted to, but you know, we don't, we charge retail. We don't, we don't overcharge on this stuff. We just charge suggested retail price and we, we have sales, you know, fairly frequently where we try to do give good deals, but, but yeah, we do have a very large catalog of Glock parts. So, so I mean, so, you know, people can rest assured that they're not going to get, you know, if they decide that they're going to back out of a Uno and, they, and you're going to get, you know, store credit, you're, there's plenty of stuff to spend that on. Because that's that's one thing you see with some of these smaller companies. It's like they make one thing. Okay, but what if I don't want, you know, for some reason I don't want that one thing. Yeah. I'm kind of I'm kind of out. You know, I kind of have to take that thing. That's That's the nice thing is that, if you're already looking at an Uno, you're building, you're building a, you're building a Glock, right? Or a Glock type frame. You're going to need parts. Yeah. Or you're going to want to upgrade parts. Um, like, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, we talked about earlier with the, uh, the, um, you know, ask the AI about upgrading. You've got custom pins that are, you know, uh, well, you had, I think you had tin coated, um, DLC and stainless. That's yeah, our three flavors of pins. So I mean, you got you got something you could bling a Glock out with. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And we are going to continue to expand. Um, you know, we're we're pretty tied in with Steel City and Nine X, and plan to carry some of more of their stuff in the future. Um, we are going to start carrying optics. Um, I've, I've purchased some Hollow Suns uh, in the announcement that we're going to put out Friday. The Friday before this comes out, uh, we're, we're going to release some optics. Uh, we've managed to get a hold of some 10 millimeter Glock barrels. So we're going to put those in stock. Um, you know, for us now, it's more about expanding our SKUs and expanding the inventory that we do carry. Um, and again, you know, we, we're really looking forward down the road to like, I've got a bunch of SIG parts that are designed. I just have to manufacture them. I've got, a, I've got some Waltha parts that are designed. I just have to manufacture them. So we are looking to expand into other pistol markets as well. Nice. So. Now, you, we kind of we kind of hinted a little bit about 1911s. What can you uh -huh. tell me about 1911s? So, um, I think that there's been a resurgence, um, you know, in, in in the popularity of 1911s and and 2011s, and I think a lot of it's been driven by the 2011s. Um, so it's something that we we've we'd be negligent if we didn't take an interest in it. Um, so we, we've started looking at uh, various configurations of, of 1911 and 2011 stuff. Um, you know, my, uh, my methodology is always to take it and learn as much as I can about the platform myself um, and really understand and intrinsically understand the platform before I begin to design parts that I would put out to the, the general populace. Um, so I'm kind of just jumping on that bandwagon and really starting to um, I purchased some some books. I guess some pretty there's some a couple of pretty well known Colt 45 kind of books out there. I can't remember the name of the authors off the top of my head, um, but really just trying to kind of learn a little bit more about 1911s and 2011s. Um, you know, I think initially we'll we'll look to do some pin kits um, specifically for 1911s. It'll be the same high quality and same steel that we use in our in our Glock pin kits. Um, again, we'll probably do tin coated and, and DLC coated. Um, you know, that'll probably be our first kind of foray into the 1911 market. Um, we've got the equipment to make those and, and crank those out pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, everything we do 
is made and manufactured in the USA. Um, the only thing right now I will say that isn't is the hollow suns that we're going to start selling. Um, but yeah. it, they're a great quality optic and it's hard not to, um, you know, when you look around at a lot of our competitors, obviously they're selling optics and making money. So it's hard not to start to look into that market. So everybody, if I could find a decent optic. USA made quality optic, I would, I would purchase it today. <laughs> uh, I don't think you can find one. Yeah. So, so it's kind of a market we're restricted in. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think you can find a low quality optic made in the US. I mean, I don't, it's just, yeah. you might find an optic that certain components were made in the US, but mostly everything's going to be China, Taiwan, or Japan for those, yeah. for those, uh, for those optics. Yeah. And I think the majority or, of these or Europe. Were, I'm sorry. Or, or somewhere in Europe. Or somewhere in Europe. Which, yeah. Which is which was probably actually you know parts came in from China, Taiwan, Taiwan or Japan. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, we go so far. Like, I have a friend that owns an apparel company, and he makes our shirts right here in Fort Worth. So our, our shirts are stitched. You know, the material comes in, the design comes in. They're made and manufactured in Fort Worth. So we we really try to get get behind the you know American only ethos. Um, and so we'll bring that same quality to whatever we do. You know, if it's pin kits. For 1911s and 2011s, if it's aftermarket parts for 1911s, 2011s, SIGs, Walters, it's all going to be made either in my facility or it'll be outsourced to one of. We do have a few trusted suppliers that we work with. Um, you know, there's only a couple, um, and they've been extensively vetted. You know, and, and they've been great suppliers for us for the last two years that we use. Um, but they're they're told specifically all material must come from the USA. We do allow material from Europe, um, but we want it manufactured here in the USA if possible. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's with any manufacturing, you have to outsource some some of your product, right? I mean, if you can't scale up all by yourself, unless you are like a SIG or, you know, what, you know a big gun company. Um, so that's not uncommon for things. I mean, if you go into the AR market, uh, I'll, I'll bring up Wyndham Wep Weaponry. Um, you know, they're, they're the original Bushmaster guys that mm -hmm. left Bushmaster and started up basically bushmaster too yeah but they don't make their own barrels i mean there's those barrels are made by somebody else to their specifications um so you can only do so much by yourself and then but as long as they build them to your specifications and your quality yeah should be good to go yeah i mean well like i said um you know i'm not a machinist or haven't been a machinist in my past and so i'm not an expert in that field so why would i try to spend yeah. ten thousand hours becoming an expert when i can pay somebody a reasonable price keep it in the end it's still manufactured in the united states and you know still bring a high quality product to market provided they hit um you know all of my requirements so yeah absolutely you can't i don't think any company that's in the space that we're in can fully do it by themselves minus maybe um you know I'm, i've always been impressed by like t-rex the holsters yeah. isaac and his brother um you know i think that they've done a really good job of of keeping the vast majority of what they do in-house um you know but it's and it's different it's different scalability and, and that kind of stuff but uh there are companies that do it it's just it's very difficult and you have to have a, a you know a vastly widely popular product in order to be able to get the financing to be able to do that so yeah totally now we've been rolling for a little over an hour uh before we get to the last thing where we just kind of have a little bit of fun where can people reach you where can people reach me 
Yeah. How can they, how can they find your products? How can they get to Rook Tactical? Oh, I mean, obviously the website is the, the best um, kind of place. It's www.rooktactical.biz. Um, and, uh, you know, if you have any questions, uh, any emails that come to info at rooktactical.biz, those go directly to me. Um, we are pretty much a one-man show. Um, a few, you know, my, I have a nephew that comes and helps me pack sometimes and a few other people, you know, family kind of run business. Um, but it is pretty much a one-man show. So, you know, if you reach out on Instagram or, uh, you know, at Rook Tactical on Instagram, uh, if you reach out through Instagram, I've, I've been known to surf Reddit here and there and, and get in trouble. Uh, so I try not to drink bourbon and surf Reddit because, <laughs> 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 um, but uh, yeah, I mean, those are the, probably the two best places. Uh, we don't do phone stuff generally. Um, I learned this lesson from Zafiri Precision. Uh, you know, they said, you know, don't do phones because it takes up so much time, you know, an email yeah. it's, you can meter when you're, when you're going to apply time to it. And it's also just a lot easier. And the vast majority of things can be solved, you know, over email. Now I'm not against calling people. I have called people, um, but for the most part, you know, if you have an issue with one of our products or want to ask us a question, then reach out through the website that comes to me through info at rooktactical.biz or, um, you know, that, or Instagram. Those are the, probably the three best. Now, when I was at FFL, uh, I mean, I had a phone number, but honestly, you never, I, you, you never got me on the phone. And even then, when I was with a customer, because everything I did was by appointment. Mm -hmm. When you had an appointment, you were, I, I wasn't doing email, I wasn't doing phones and stuff like that while the customer was there. But when it was done, I was all over answering or, you know, there's times I was checking out in store. It's like, oh, I got an email. Uh, oh, that's quick. That's an easy question. I mean, you just answer this. So there is, there is that thing about um, electronic communications is that you can be, there are times where it can actually be beneficial to um to doing that especially when you're trying to walk somebody through something because now they got the steps written down it's not like wait wait what did he say um it's right there go for yeah. it yeah it's and you know as an engineer I, I i like to give instructions and write them down yeah so. <laughs> yeah absolutely so it does. And, and i just devote a uh you know within my routine i you know when i get to the shop in the morning the first thing i do is check for any emails or issues and, and that's kind of the first thing I take care of to get my day started as I'm drinking my coffee. So there you go. Now, just to kind of wind things down, I want to do a speed round. Okay. So it's going to be four this or that questions and then one thinking question. And uh, what's so funny is we do the speed round to, to wrap up the show. And sometimes the speed round just ends up being a long round uh, because it usually spawns a conversation. But anyways, I got plenty rifles, of time. So you're good. There you go. For rifles, AK or AR? AR. Nine millimeter or forty-five? Ooh, nine millimeter. Okay. For hearing protection, earmuffs or earplugs? Uh, I'm an earplugs guy. Indoor or outdoor range? Outdoor, always. Now, for your thinking question, I'm going to take you into the world's largest armory. And in this armory has literally one of every gun that has ever been existed, that has ever existed, whether it's prototype or production, full auto, semi-auto, revolver, any action you can imagine. 
And I go, Pete, you can take one, but only one. What's the I gun you need for? You get the oh, minigun. Yours. GE minigun. Mini there you go. All, all day long. <laughs> all day long, yeah. This Texas, we can hunt <laughs> pigs with a minigun in here. <laughs> there, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, Peta. Yeah. Um, they are. That is one amazing piece of, of, of weaponry right there. It um, is, but it's what's funny is is it's so simple. Like it's yeah. when you look at it and how it fires and how it how it works, its mechanism. It's a pretty simple mechanism. It's just um, I don't know. I've I've always loved them. I think that they're you know and and the the A ten Warthog is one of my favorite planes and yeah. you know the Vulcan cannon that they've got in that is essentially just a very large minigun. Um, yep. So so it's always been something that I've. I've uh, kind of looked at and gone, you know, this thing was uh, Predator, the movie Predator, the one that I had. I, you see, I was going to bring that up. I was going to say you wanted that because of Predator. That's probably the, the first place that I ever saw one, uh, for sure. That was um, that was the first time I ever saw one, was Predator. Yeah. Yeah, loaded yeah. with the loaded with the tracers every fifth round, and I'd be I'd be happy. Yeah. I'd be pretty happy. Um, yeah, it's 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 it is an amazing piece of machinery. Um, you know, and I don't know if you've ever looked at, man, I think it's called the C-RAM. So the, the U S military actually has a, a, a minigun that will track incoming ordnance and shoot it out of the sky, but it's essentially a minigun. That's the C-RAM, is that what it's called? Uh, C-Wiz? C-Wiz, C-Wiz. yeah. Which is another, another one of my favorites. Another, yeah. Yeah. Cause you got the, you got the, the minigun with the big dome. Yeah. Cylinder dome. Yeah. The radar sort of, dome. yeah. Yep. So yeah, and just you know, yeah, watching one a, of those in action. Amazing. Yeah. Now, if I could get one of those, I'd probably have one of those. But that's yeah. You know, well, I don't think that's civilian. It, the the whole thing is, is you can have one and only one, and only one. it was a, every gun. So that would that would be in that warehouse. I think the problem you would have with that is feeding it ammo. Yeah, you you'd go bankrupt pretty quick feeding that you'd thing. Go bankrupt ammo. really quick. So well, even um, just a general minigun. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, it's funny that you brought up um, the A-10, the, the A-10 Warhogs. Uh, I grew up just outside of Northeast Philly, and okay. we had uh, Willgrove Air Naval Station there, and nice. the Air Force had A-10s there. So we, you know, as a kid, I, I, you, you know, the engine of an A-10. They're mm-hmm. they're high, they're they're whiny engines, um, yeah. and I remember uh, before we moved back to montana here we had a house in delaware and um you know we had uh, dover air force base was only like an hour away and my wife and i were out working in the yard and and uh she goes what kind of aircraft is that and i didn't even look in the air i go that's an a10 she goes how do you know that i go the engine noise she goes, <laughs> how do you know that i go as a kid, we heard A10s flying over all the time. You know, you know the line of that A10 engine. Um, oh yeah, they're they're pretty cool. But yeah, but that we, that gal that's on the front of that, that's that's an amazing that's an amazing gun. Well, yeah, I mean they built the gun and then they built the airplane around the gun, right? That's how. That's yeah, how it was, exactly. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They built the gun, then they built a titanium bathtub for the pilot to sit in, and then they just built everything around that. It and it, when they fire that thing, it actually slows the plane down. Yeah. So they have to throttle up when they fire because it starts slowing the plane down. So it's it's well, it's nutty. Uh, we, I see one every once in a while. You know, we have the the F thirty five base here, 
And yeah. every once in a while, we'll see an A10. Um, but I see F35s pretty much every day. So, yeah, we don't out here. We don't see. It's very rare for us to see a military jet out here. We used to have um, out of because Maelstrom is only an hour and a half away from us. But <laughs> even then, uh, that's a missile base. Um, yeah. You know, it used to be the the refueling wing for the uh, the bombers, the nuclear capable bombers going over for first strike. Yeah. Um, but then we had um, we had the uh, F-15. So it wasn't it wasn't uncommon for us to see F-15s every once in a while. Uh, but even then they pulled they pulled those out of the uh, airport. So we don't we just don't get to see military jets. We get to see um, we, we get to see uh, C-130s every once in a while. <laughs> we get to see the cargo planes, basically. Um, we, get, we get a lot of those. Um, one of the guys that I work out with in the mornings, he's a C-130 pilot. So. Yeah, we get um, yeah. What when when one of the military jets comes into town, the entire valley knows. I mean, it's a it's a valley of what sixty thousand people. Um, okay. You know, and there's mountains all around, so we hear the jet engines. You know, just bounce off those things, and um, it doesn't matter what military aircraft is taking off; they take off at full throttle. You hear it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so. Well, anyways, you know, Pete, man, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. I know you, you, you know, you work from home just so you could be on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And um, we'll definitely keep an eye on the website for the new stuff coming out. And everybody, definitely go check out Rook Tactical. I mean, I, I met Rook. You know, he, he talked about Kenny, who's Marine Gun Builder. Um, you know, I met, gosh, what did we, we met like, Three months ago. What's so funny is both of us were at Shot Show. We well, it's it's not like it's un, uncommon to not run into somebody at Shot since yeah. it's so big. But both <laughs> of us were at Range Day, which is a little bit smaller. Yeah. I mean, it's basically a line, but yet, you know, we it, it's so funny we're in the same areas we never ran into each other. And no, well, one of the things that I've learned about the guns industry is it's a lot smaller than most people I think give it you know realize. So. Um, I agree. Met a lot of great people since I started doing this. Um, you know, we're, we're, we went to TriggerCon last year. We're going to go again this year, and then I'll nice. be at, at Shot Show again. Uh, but those are the two that I'll probably stick to. Uh, but yeah, the the, the industry's a, a lot smaller than most people realize, and and I've made a lot of really good friends and met a lot of really good people. Um, I really appreciate you having me on your podcast, man. It's been a blast. I'd do it, definitely do it again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll definitely have you on again. It's you know, it, you want to come on, you let me know. We can talk okay. about guns. We can talk about parts. We talk about whatever. It's 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 all about just getting on here, talking guns, and having fun. Yeah, no, I love it, man. Great format, great questions. Uh, like I said, I I'm a I'm a big fan. We've done one other podcast, but it was kind of a. I'll send you a link to it, and you can you can listen. To it. It's a little bit yeah. different, <laughs> um, but uh, no, this has been great. I would definitely definitely come back on anytime. So. Yeah, man, I appreciate I appreciate you I appreciate you coming on, and and definitely, man, I had I had a lot of fun on this one. Now, I met Peter through a meeting with Marine Gun Builder, and, you know, I just knew that I wanted him on the podcast. It took us a little while to get him into the schedule, but I am so glad that he came on. It was a great time talking to him. I learned so much about his business. I mean, talk about the American dream. He's living it. I mean, he created his own business. He's doing what he loves, and I am so jealous that he's got that life definitely go check out Rook Tactical. They've got some great stuff, some awesome looking pins. If you're looking to upgrade a boring Glock, 
man, he's got some nice stuff. Go check it out. I'll have a link down in the description below. Now for the product of the podcast, it is the Falco Roto Shoulder Holster. I'm sorry for you guys on the audio side, but the video side, you can see that I'm wearing this right now, getting ready to release the update video of this holster because I did a review, initial review, but now I got a chance to wear this thing through the winter and I've got some information for you. But I do love this thing, man. I mean, what's really nice is you got the safety here and the gun rotates down. So that way it's easier for a draw. You're not pulling up and it's not sticking out all the time. It's in the position where it needs to be when it's stored and literally like pulling that snap, it's in the position that you need to draw. Go check out the Falco Roto Holster. I'll have a link down below. If you're watching on YouTube, click right there. That is a video that's on the one year update of me using the Real Avid Master Vice. Everybody else, the link is down below. Thanks for listening. Hope you're staying safe out there. I look forward to talking to you again soon.